If you would like to sell to enterprise clients but don't know about GDPR, HIPAA, SOC 2, and others, this episode is for you. Girish Redekar from Sprinto knows all about compliance with these certificates having gone through the process dozens of times. We will discuss when you need them and how to become compliant. Welcome back to the Product Stories Podcast hosted by Victor Peralnik. This podcast helps founders like yourself to find leaner ways to build successful SaaS products. Girish, welcome to the show. Thanks, Victor. Really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Me too. How have you ended up in this space? How do you do compliance? Are you a, a lawyer? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm actually an engineer uh, by profession. Yes. And uh, I'm happiest when I'm actually writing code and building products. And uh, <laughs> I actually first came across compliances when I was running my previous startup, which incidentally was in the recruiting space. And, uh, you know, while we were growing that startup and we were trying to take it up market, we were increasingly getting more questions about hey, uh, what about your security posture? What do you do about uh, private and uh, sensitive information? And, uh, you know, like most engineers, uh, you try and wing it for a while. Uh, you, you try and say that, hey, uh, <laughs> we are on AWS and AWS is SOC to compliant and, you know, they are secure and consequently the application is secure and, and that kind of applies for a while, but it doesn't uh, beyond a point with anybody who is actually serious about this. So here I was, uh, you know, as a founder slash engineer uh, in, in a company where we were getting increasingly asked for these things and uh, uh, got a front row seat to what does it take to make uh, your company compliant with standards like SOC 2 and ISO and GDPR and, and some of the other ones. And long story short, I wouldn't say it was a very pleasant journey. <laughs> I burnt my fingers <laughs> with it. And uh, after we successfully exited that company and I was thinking about uh some of the ideas that we could work on. I think both I and my co-founder have a soft corner for boring, unsexy problems that nobody wants to touch. <laughs> and this was one of those uh, uh, things which which we thought was pretty interesting. So, so that 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 kind of is the story of Sprinto. Uh, you know, that that's how we went on to build a product that uh, that makes your life easier in, in going about these compliances. It's like on a scale from one to ten, what is the least attractive thing we could start next? Oh, boom. That's a 10 right there. Let's do it. Love it. But to clarify, your previous company was in a recruiting space, but it was a SaaS, right? It was a software yes. company. Mm. Yeah, it was a software company in the recruiting space. Okay. So you and your co-founder decided to just take a shot at it to start helping SaaS founders with compliance. And so you said you you were you were going up market with your previous company, um, which means you were attracting bigger and bigger clients. And um, mostly when we speak about these compliance issues, that's when the word enterprise falls. Is that only the, something that enterprise clients want? Or when would how would you define an enterprise client? When does that become relevant? Actually, that's a great question. And I, I've sort of, from the first time I've come across this to now, I've sort of seen this pan out over a five-year time frame as well so you know back in the day when i first came across this you would describe enterprise as a deal that's you know maybe in the late five figures or six figure deals that's when you basically start calling them enterprise and uh, these are typically companies who have dedicated teams internally to make sure that 
any vendor that they sign up with uh, meets certain requirements, uh, either because they themselves have regulatory requirements internally or, or because of the nature of the business, or they just have more mature security practices. So either of those two things would basically translate to they, they put their vendors through some sort of a security review. And that naturally would happen with companies of a certain size or a certain book of business. Uh, and, you know, uh, so so that's, that was the definition of an enterprise sale. What I've, however, seen happen over the the five years or so from the first time I came across this is that the the floor at which you get asked for these compliances is it's constantly dropping. You know, it used to be the the six figure deals where you get asked for this, and, and now I'm basically seeing that you get you're getting asked for this in uh, in the smaller and smaller deals with what we call typically mid market now. You know, and, and you're increasingly getting asked for these compliances in one way or the other over there as well and the reason that's happening is a you know there is just a lot more awareness about security and privacy that's kind of a macro thing but what's also happening is that a lot of these compliances uh, both security and privacy compliances they are somewhat transitive in nature which which fundamentally means like and you would have seen this with uh, you know the the things like gdpr where if you as an entity are trying to be gdpr compliant and, and you know if you have sub processors where the data flows and you need to make sure that they are gdpr compliant and so on and so forth so you sort of uh, you have this chain ball reaction that's happening and the chain reaction basically means that more and more entities need to become compliant and it, there's a similar effect with soc2 uh, and other compliances as well so these things have become more and more formal. Third-party risk is considered as an important component of security and uh, privacy compliances, which basically means that the, the floor at which you get asked for these things is constantly dropping. And I'm increasingly now seeing this being asked for, you know, deals as small as 10,000 US dollars. And so, so that, that's a new thing. Wow. Yeah, it is sort of in line with the trend, right? SaaS is supposedly becoming harder there is more and more red tape so it it does kind of make sense same with uh, things like vat and sales tax right which is a topic for another episode i think that'd be worth talking about but i think it's very similar here now the question though is do these enterprise customers demand it because they have different regulations because sometimes and for a lot of things i believe that it's just that enterprise customers know they have to care and a lot of other clients, smaller clients, they should be compliant, but they, they're either not aware or they don't care or they know that it would just be too much of a hassle. Because for example, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but you should be GDPR compliant, especially and mostly if you work with consumers, right? But yes, those are the ones that never ask for it. The enterprise asks for it because they themselves have to make goddamn sure they are compliant towards their consumers and that's why they ask you for it right so you're absolutely right there victor uh you know like especially with things like gdpr to put it very simply they are they are laws of the land so you don't have an option there of whether you're compliant or not you you should be uh you know like if as soon as you do process data of a european resident uh, you know you're by law required to actually be gdpr compliant there however there is a in reality there is a gap between you know the the way a enterprise company which has to put it simply more to lose the, you know the way they crystallize these practices internally and, and uh, formalize these things in the way they actually deal with vendors uh, versus uh, relatively smaller companies who, who may not necessarily have that maturity internally to do these things uh, so, so there, there's there's like a gap between those two things so 
more often than not, as a result, uh, you know, your trigger, your true trigger to actually worry about these compliances start happening when an enterprise deal is blocked from this. And there you get the, you know, the trifecta of there's a customer who is likely paying you a lot of money and they have this requirement and you're ready to bend over backward to whatever it is that they need in order to close that deal. It's typically the place where this sort of bubbles into the top three things that you need to do as an organization. Yeah, that, that, that's true for sure. What, what different types of compliance are there? Is there some sort of differentiation I can make between any of these? I mean, there are ways, ways to cut this thing. But, uh, you, you know, a couple of ways that you could simply look at this is that there are a bunch of compliances which are security specific, which fundamentally is about whether the authorized people have access to data and, and does data fall into the wrong hands, uh, to put it very simply in layman language. And then there are privacy-related uh, compliances, which is usually around the rights of people around this, around the data that you're processing. And so, so these are the two very high-level uh, sort of uh, differences in compliances that you could make out. And if you look at GDPR or Canada is coming up with PIPEDA, and then, you know, uh, there are a lot of uh, governments that are coming up with their own privacy laws. They're related to this kind of thing, and they have to do with the rights that people have with their own personal data and the way you need to do that. That's that, that's one of the ways to cut this. And what happens over here is that the privacy-related compliances tend to be more like regulation. Uh, so, so they are laws of the land that you need to follow, whereas the security-related compliance are typically not regulatory, but they are something that's uh, usually required in order for you to do business. So this is something that's enforced by your customer. I mean, you're okay by the law of the land, but you know your customer requires you to be compliant with this famous, and that's the reason that you typically do this. So that's one level of you know cutting this. The other way of doing it is, it is about the kind of data that you're dealing with. So for example, you could think about just personal data, and there's a bunch of compliances related to that. There's a bunch of compliances that are related to credit card information. So if you look at PCI, it's, it literally stands for uh, you know cardholder information related compliance. If you're dealing with uh, medical records in the in North America, then you have basically HIPAA, which is related to patient health information and how you deal with the compliance related to that. There are specific compliances related to financial information and so on. So, so you know, you, you could cut it in that way, depending on the, the kind of data that you're processing. That's another way to cut it. And then, of course, the there are some compliances which are extremely region-specific, GDPR included, where they are valid depending on the region that you're doing business. In. So there's CCPA in California, there's PIPEDA in Canada, there's GDPR in Europe, I think most countries are coming up with their own privacy laws again. So those are very region-specific ones. And here we are with our tiny SaaS, you know, one engineer or something like that, and we're trying to make sense of it. Have you, I don't know, you probably have sort of looked at these also in various regions. Let's take, a, <coughs> let's take data protection, for example, because this is the one that really every region is trying to somehow implement by law is that is there a difference? Are they similar? Is it even possible to find like one solution that gets you compliance with most of these, or are they like vastly different? The good news is, while there are differences and uh, there is a lot of rituals uh, and documentation that's extremely specific to some of these compliances, uh, at the core, in their sense, uh, there are huge degrees of overlaps as well. Now, depending on how you actually implement your security and your privacy measures, you can actually get huge benefits in terms of reusability 
as and when you need some of these other components. So I, I feel that there are roughly two extreme ways of sort of going after this problem. If you go after this problem in a manner where you are getting lost in the details and the checklist of the specific compliances, they will look very different. So the legal language of GDPR versus PIPIDA versus CCPA will look very different. But if you boil it down to its essence, uh, you know, the, there is a lot of overlap between them. So if you actually do implement it well, you can, as even as a young, small company, uh, go across a large number of these compliances. And this is uh, one of the things that we help you do at Sprint Up. You know, the, what our, our job is to sort of give you a security and a privacy program that works across a large number of compliances rather than <laughs> sort of expose you to all the nitty gritties that happen with each compliance. And you're kind of doing a zero to one on each of these things, which is not an enviable job. Hiring a perfect team isn't a piece of cake, is it? To find a good candidate, you need to post a job on multiple job boards, review like 100 CVs, conduct at least a dozen initial interviews to make sure there's at least a single specialist you would like to hire. But with Superb Hire by Trustshore, you can forget about all of the hiring headache. Find, meet, and hire skilled and dedicated assistants ready to take over marketing, sales, administrative, customer support, data entry, or other tasks, contribute to your business growth, and help you reach your goals. Superb Hire takes care of the entire recruitment process. You just have to show up for the final interview. Visit superbhire.com and book a free, no commitment call to learn more. It's superbhire.com. So, what is the core of these data protection agreements? What what does the law want consumers to be able to do or companies not to do? At a very high level, these are things that you would expect in a very common sense level. Uh, what they want you to be able to do is uh, fundamentally, if I as a company take your data as a consumer, I should make sure that it is not falling into the wrong hands without your permission. You should have the right to say that, uh, you know, forget everything about me, uh, delete my data, those kind of things. So it's, there's a right to be forgotten and it's, it's mentioned in various different manners, but that's fundamentally what you want it to be. I should take utmost care to make sure this data doesn't fall into the wrong hands or gets used for the wrong purposes beyond what you have given me permissions for. So these are the things that a privacy law sort of tends to uh, have in place. Uh, the security-related compliances are specifically working about uh, or making sure that access to this data doesn't fall into the wrong hands. You, you know, in the sense that uh, it is not so much about your rights, but you know, I as a company uh, get to choose that you know these are the people or the parties who can have access to this or this level of extent of access to this data and what can i do to protect that it doesn't fall into the wrong hands whether an employee who has left my company or you know a third party who should not get access to this and so on and so forth so, so there is there's is, there is stuff related to that but at a very common sense level it is kind of like treating data as in true asset it's no different than the money that you put in a bank and whatever reasonable checks and balances you would expect with that is a similar kind of checks and balances that the, these compliance expect you to take with data alone. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. And so, yeah, data protection would be, I take your data and so I need to tell you what I'm going to do with it. And you need to give me permission to use it for certain things. I know that you know, for GDPR, obviously, if I want to send you marketing email, I need special consent for that. It's not just, yeah. I actually need to give you special consent to send marketing email on top of, I don't know, I receive your email to schedule a call, which is what I use it for. But if I then want to follow up with newsletters, eh, I can't do that. But 
you know, still that data can be accessed by pretty much anybody within my company and that's fine. So now we go to the security related one. So as I understand, that means if I take your credit card data, I actually have to make sure that the I don't know, cleaning lady doesn't have access to it, right? Or that the front office clerk doesn't have access to it because they don't need to. Actually, probably nobody should have access to it apart from support and maintenance staff in very specific cases, right? I assume. And that would what have to be logged somehow? Yes. Any access has to be logged so that you can sort of look back at whether it was uh, done in an appropriate manner. And, and I think the especially with credit card data, which is uh, something that's been around, you know, for, for a few decades now, uh, the, the best in class, uh, the, the industry best standard is that nobody should be able to actually see your credit card information at all. Like it, it gets something that can get used, but even internally, you don't actually need to know the, all the digits of your card and everything else that gets encrypted. And the most you get like the last four digits so that you can still identify the card correctly. But beyond that, you needn't get access to it at all because these are these are these are systems that are completely set up in software now, they, you know, and they're encrypted at the right level. So yes, that's the uh, you, you actually described it pretty well. Okay, and to maybe go back to to that logging. Mm-hmm. So for example, SOC two is probably the the most famous uh, security standard, I assume, right? What does that require you to do? How should I make <laughs> sure that everything is safe and secure? Right. So. Frameworks like SOC2 give you like a fairly structured way of thinking about how to secure something. These things typically start with what is called as a risk assessment exercise, where you actually look at not just your data, you look at systems that directly or indirectly affect that data. And you, you, you fundamentally ask the question of what could go wrong. And, and, you know, you, you basically come up with a list of risks to the, the, that, that exists to the access of this data. And, and then you think about what are the ways of actually mitigating that risk? So, uh, you know, typically you would come up with areas of the sort like access management. You know, how do you decide who are the right people who get access to this? Could you say something like, you know, only these titles or roles in my company should get access to this data? For example, you could say software engineers, it's okay to access AWS, but a marketing person or a salesperson or a customer success person needn't get that access. And you could come up with reasonable ways of deciding who should or should not get access to this data or this system. That's one. You could do what is called a change management around these things, which which fundamentally means that anytime some changes happen to this, does that get managed in the sense does somebody else apart from the person who is doing the change review or approve these changes and, and can someone make changes to this thing unilaterally or does it go through like a review of some sort so you could look at it from that lens so so there are like areas related to change management and access control and monitoring like is there a way that you're constantly monitoring these systems to see where the gaps are if they have the right things in place with respect to capacity, with respect to encryption or anything else. So there's, there's, a, there's an area around that. There's an area around what we call as, uh, you know, has become popularized third-party risk management, or in simple words, it's vendor management. Increasingly, every company uses other companies and systems to run their company. This is especially true in SaaS. Right? It, it's, it's hard to imagine a SaaS business today that's not based on top of AWS or it uses Zoom or uh, you know, use a Slack or Google Workspace or something else. So fundamentally, uh, you know, a SaaS company uses other SaaS companies and so on and so forth. And, and you need to be able to make 
a, a clear plan of you know the data that you uh, process on your customer's behalf? Does it flow to these other processors and, and are they having the right security measures in place, et cetera? So what SOC 2 really gives you is a structured way to think about your security program rather than you know trying it can get very overwhelming about how to think about this thinking. Have you that given you areas about how to go about this? What do you, how do you think about your third party vendors? What do you do about change management? What do you do about access control? What do you do about your people when they join your company, leave your company or change teams within your company and so on and so forth? So they give you a framework which you can then apply and, and that sort of covers the various areas of security and privacy. What I'm wondering with all of this is we established what you're supposed to do in order to be compliant, at least at a high level, of course. We also established that mostly people do it because they're getting asked by a big client. Now, what happens between me as a SaaS company and my big client who wants to, you know, check their boxes in, in, in legal? How do I prove that I'm capable of that? How do I, how, how do they make these checks in, 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 in all of these? What do we do? What do we sign or what do we prove to? be able to show we're compliant. So what happens with frameworks like SOC 2 or ISO is that, you know, this is like a standard problem. And if I were to actually dial back to like a couple of decades where imagine uh, you, Victor, are an enterprise company and, and I'm somebody who's trying to send, sell you a piece of software and you would have a bunch of questions about whether, I, whether I'm doing the right things by you and whether I'm protecting the data that, that you're sharing with me. And what you would do is basically you would actually have a team who audits me and my security measures and, and, you know, tries to make sure that they are up to the mark. Now, as you can imagine, that's a inefficient process because you are going to have to do that with each and every of your vendors. And I'm going to have to do that with each and every of my customers. And I'm just kind of both of us are just repeating uh, work that's uh, that, that's potentially unnecessary. So what really started happening with frameworks like SOC2 and ISO is that there is an independent third party who certifies people or institutions who can actually do these audits for you. So what really happens with SOC2, for example, is there's a governing body called AICPA, which certifies audit firms who can actually put trained at doing these audits for you. And these audit firms perform these audits. They are trained, independent, certified professionals who actually do this audit and they give you a report which they sign saying that oh, look i assessed this company for their security measures and this is my opinion of what i think about the security measures and they give you like this document and this is your soft report now i share the soft report with you the advantage for you is that you needn't do an audit for each of your vendors and there's a third party who both you and i trust who is doing this audit and we can sort of use and this is no different than what happens in other spheres of life. For example, to, in, in the USA, like if you want to apply to colleges, like you, you SATs, like imagine you having to do an entrance exam with each college and that's, that's not going to be making sense. So you instead write a common exam and, you know, colleges recognize it and you can also get the advantage. And this is no different than so SOC2, ISO, et cetera, are third party audited frameworks. And that's where the value comes in that, uh, you know, uh, Everybody recognizes these third parties as independent certified people who can actually do these audits. And consequently, their their audit reports or their certificates carry a certain amount of credibility, which you can depend on. Okay, of course, certificates. That makes a lot of sense. And what do we do to become compliant in, in, with, with the various data protection measures? 
the details can vary slightly depending on the specific compliance that you're looking at but fundamentally each of these frameworks have defined certain requirements you know they call different things like in software you call them criteria in iso they are called controls but uh, fundamentally there are a bunch of requirements about what they expect you to do as a company and they, those requirements are typically grouped in different sections that we just talked about like you could have some requirements around how you do risk management how do you do access control how do you do third party assessments how do you do change management how how do you treat staff that is joining and leaving your company and what happens over there what do you do for monitoring and so on and so forth so there are there are typically seven or eight areas that they would describe security measures that you need to do about and it's your job as a company to implement the security measures that meet those requirements an auditor then independently checks whether your measures a are designed correctly whether uh, the design of these measures is something that meets this requirement and b they'll check whether they are operating correctly which means you designed the right thing you said that i'm going to do a background check on all employees who join my company great uh, that's that's perfect design now give me evidence that uh, you know these of all the employees who joined your company in the last 12 months let's say did they, did you actually do those background checks and then you know then you got to prove to the auditor that hey look this we actually ran this process and here's evidence to prove that i did that you're telling me that you're going to encrypt your databases you give me proof that you know you actually did that in practice and, and so you sort of share evidence with the auditors explaining to them that look these are the databases that i have that contain sensitive data and i am encrypting it and here's proof that i encrypted it so these are the pieces of evidence that you give to the auditor and the auditor is then telling you okay you did what you're supposed to do Mm-hmm. So that's what an auditor is actually looking for. Uh, you know, they are looking for a whether you have the right security practices in place, and b whether those security practices are running as intended. And these are obviously this is when you get the certificate for data protection. I usually see that most people don't have cert. I, I don't think there are certificates, right? But mostly, it's yeah. okay. We we're gonna we're, we're just gonna force our data protection policy onto you you sign this data protection agreement data processing agreement sorry that's what they're called right data processing agreement DPS, by, yes. by 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 signing by merely signing that you essentially declare that you are compliant right and then you have to worry about that or do you also have do you also see certifications there no so uh for things which are not like software iso these are basically regulations uh, uh, the regulations demand that you sign dpas with your vendors and, and those are nothing but contractual obligations that you pass on to your vendors uh, you know so if if you are a company and, and you are basically uh, working with me you're in your in the dpa that you sign with me uh, fundamentally you're telling me that hey i expect you to do have these security measures in place and i'm sort of signing up for the fact that i will have the security measures in place and that's about it i'm just contractually saying yes to it in few cases very few cases you could over and above that audit me for the same and see whether you know i want to actually check whether you have these things in place though as you can imagine that's that's uh, very expensive for you to do with each and every of your vendor and and uh, you know so, so uh you're hoping that i will do that because i have legal liability to actually do that because i've signed the dpa stating that i'm going to do that because that's a part of my contractual obligations so these bits are not typically audited though you could there are some mm-hmm. uh, third parties who who would audit you but uh, those certifications or those reports are of little value like they are they have as much value as the person reading them assigns to it uh, you know they they are not inherently a standard 
thank you. Uh, that that really gives a, a very very good overview over the different types of compliance is how to get compliant, how to get certified, why to get certified, who wants what, and uh, all of that. Now, where does Sprinto come in to all of this? What, what do you guys do? How do you help with compliance? Fundamentally, there are two or three bits that you need to do as a company when you're trying to become compliant with this. Well, I'll start with an, uh, the most extensive example, which is a program like SOC2, for example. So A, you need to start implementing the security practices in the first place. Most companies won't have at least part of these practices already in place. So you're going through like a zero to one journey where you're sort of implementing all the security and compliance practices that you need to do. So you may not be doing uh, gating access of people. Uh, you might be just ad hocly granting and removing access for people as and when required, which is what most young companies would do. Uh, you may not be having the right processes in place when you uh, hire people or when you let go of people. You may not have the right practices and processes about, uh, you know, the way you handle your databases, whether you're backing them up, whether you're encrypting them, etc. So there's a phase where you need to implement the right uh, security practices. And this itself is a lot of work. What you as a startup do is you typically hire a security consultant and, you know, they are going to have a conversation with you and, and they tell you that, hey, maybe you should do this and maybe you should do that, etc., etc. So there's, there's, a, there's one step, which is that. Then there's a second phase, which is where having implemented all of the security measures, uh, you know, that's just one part of the job. Now you need to run and operate and maintain them over a period of time. This is not a point in time thing. You need to do this on a continuous basis. So it becomes your job as a company to run these security practices and they can run into, you know, like about 100 practices that you're running consistently. And it's your job as a company or someone's job inside of the company to keep tabs on this, to make sure these security measures are running on time every time without exception. Right? So, so that, that there's a bit of work associated with that. There's a third part that happens at the end of this whole thing is not only are you supposed to run the security measures, you're supposed to keep collecting proof or evidence that you're running these measures. So it's one thing to say that my database is encrypted. It's another thing to prove that the database was encrypted over a period of time, because that's what an auditor is going to look for. The auditor is going to ask you, show me that your database is encrypted. And you'll say that, hey, look, my database is encrypted. He says, okay, great. This I can see it's encrypted now. But how do I know it was encrypted a day ago, a week ago, a month ago, or at some point in the past? So what used to happen is that you as a, as a company uh, would be taking screenshots of the fact that, hey, my database is encrypted as of this day, and, and et cetera. <laughs> and you, know, you multiply that by the number of databases you have, and you multiply that by the different security practices that you're measuring, and you can quickly understand that how this gets out of hand. Uh, you know, it becomes somebody's job in the company to keep taking these screenshots or logs or tickets or documents around the fact that you're doing this thing. And the evidence collection around this thing is actually much harder than actually running the security practice itself and you know this quickly gets out of hand and you uh, this is the part i was talking about earlier where uh, you know i burnt my fingers learning how this works so, so this is the bit that needs to happen as you can imagine especially for a company that's young small doesn't have dedicated resources to run compliance programs this can get very overwhelming very quickly what sprinter is designed to do is we integrate with your systems that you use as a company and automate these bits of it. We'll tell you what exactly are the security measures that you need to run, uh, you know, because we integrate with your AWS account, let's say, or your G Suite account and, and other accounts, and we'll tell you automatically these are the security measures that you need to run. We'll monitor those security measures for you automatically, 
keep collecting evidence around them behind the scenes so that you don't have to manually do that. And we map all the collected evidence to what the auditors need to see at the end of the day. So we actually have partnerships with audit firms. We understand what the auditors require of your company and they get whatever they need to see in order to conduct an audit automatically as well. So what happens for you as a company, you are focused on actually doing the things that make you more secure. We'll tell you, hey, this database needs encryption. Go ahead and encrypt it. Here's how you do it. We'll tell you that, hey, this particular account needs to have multi-factor authentication enforced on it. You go ahead and do it. So you remain focused on the things that actually make you more secure, whereas all the manual, laborious, painstaking work that happens, which is around just documentation and evidence collection and all of those things is something that Sprinto automates for you. And that means that you're going to be able to do this 10 times faster or with one tenth the effort. And that's the real value that Sprinto brings to the table. That is impressive. That is that is a lot of work taken off yes. someone's plate. Oh, of course. Uh, and that is for AWS-based startups mostly, right? No, no. So that was just an example. We work. Oh, with, okay. Uh, you, you know, we work with various kinds of systems, including uh, you know some startups could be having on-prem. Those are oh, okay. smaller in number. Yeah. I somehow thought that was just for AWS, but uh, no, it's it's it, it's it's universal. Okay, awesome. Where can people go to learn more? Where are they supposed to? How how can they find you and uh, start becoming compliant, or just ask questions if they like to? So we are at sprinter.com, www.sprinter.com. Check us out over there. My personal email is girish at sprinter.com. If you have any questions related to compliance about privacy or you know just enterprise sales, happy to chat, uh, happy to share my experiences if that's useful. So you have a direct line to me as well. Uh, you know, happy to do either of those two things. Awesome. Thank you so much. This has been super informative. Thank you for becoming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Victor. I really enjoyed this. This show is brought to you by TrustShoring, your friendly concierge to find reliable and tested software developers from Eastern Europe. We recruit full-time developers, match you to an experienced software house that's ideal for your requirements, or recommend a reliable freelancer for smaller projects. But most importantly, you benefit from our experience of developing software remotely for almost 10 years. We give you one-on-one -on -one guidance all the way so you're never lost. Stop the tedious hiring or vetting process and get matched to reliable talent. Sign up for a free consulting call with one of our experts today. Go to TrustShoring.com.